it was uh, March 13th, it was 8.41 at night. It was myself and a uh, financial accountant, the only ones in the place as it had been for a number of those nights for January, February, and early March. And uh, my phone rang and uh, I recognized the number, the area code, and uh, it had been a client that we'd been actively pursuing along with four other companies. And he was calling to say, uh, just want to say congratulations, um, you've won. It was just relief that for everything the company had gone through um, over the past 90 days, and it was like, <sighs> yeah, I got teary-eyed a little bit. And so that was, um, that was the beginning of a turning point. This is Rally, a show about business leaders facing failure and bouncing back. I'm your host, Michaela Bennett. Hi, everyone. Today's show is about an entrepreneur. Michael Duda, founder, Bullish. Oh, wait, I got to do that again. I forgot the magic partner. Let me do it. Ready? Michael Duda, founder, managing partner, Bullish. Mike is going to tell us about a time when he was chosen to lead an advertising agency as its chief executive officer. The catch is that Mike thought the company was headed for big growth. Instead, he ended up having to take it through a turnaround. There was no, nothing scandalous, nothing with the word Ponzi anywhere associated with it, but there was nothing going for it. And, and even though I had revised things down sight unseen, our January numbers were off 81%. I can do a lot of things. It's actually hard to do that, to put numbers in there and just that. But the, for whatever reason, numbers were put in. And this was right before I had gotten there that it indicated we'd make a certain number and the money didn't come in. Before we get into all that and how Mike handled the situation, I think you should know a little more about his current business. Mike and his partner Brent founded Bullish in 2015. If you listened to an earlier rally episode about Ample Hills Creamery, the name Bullish might sound familiar. The company is part venture capital firm and part marketing agency. If that sounds weird to you, it's probably because that sort of combination is not very common. Before Bullish, Mike and Brent had worked together at another firm Mike founded. Together, they've invested in and worked on marketing for just a few brands you might know. Once upon a time, there was a simple box. Inside it, the most comfortable mattress imaginable. This is the story of Harry's. This is Jeff and Andy, the two hairless youths who will one day grow up, develop facial hair, and get tired of paying too much for razor blades. Why do razors cost so much? By circumventing traditional channels, designing glasses in-house, and engaging with customers directly, we're able to offer premium eyewear at a fraction of the going price. Most of life is a string of barely noticeable moments. Victories, setbacks, mostly tiny, all beautiful. Hi, I'm the internet. You've got mail. What do you think I'd look like? Some wiry. Hey, I know a bunch of people who'd like that. Who is that? The internet loves what you're doing. So build a site in under an hour at GoDaddy. Just in case you missed any, those advertisements were for Casper, the online mattress company, Harry's, the online shaving company, Warby Parker, which began as an online-only eyewear brand, Peloton Bike, and GoDaddy. In 2017, Bullish helped create GoDaddy's Super Bowl ad, which you just heard. Not the one with that really uncomfortable kiss. 
Just a couple months ago, one of my best friends from high school called me raving about her new shampoo and conditioner from a company called Function of Beauty. I stopped her in the middle of explaining the brand because I already knew. I'd written about the business because one of their investors is, you guessed it, bullish. So who is this guy, Mike, and how did he get here? I'm a madman, but uh, I don't have a bar in my office. I, uh, I don't really drink that many browns. I don't really drink brown spirits for that matter, um, but an ad guy. And, and spent a uh, number of years, the most of which 13 years at uh, Deutsch Advertising under Donnie Deutsch, where I luckily met my, my bride. And um, I just love the power of marketing can do when done well to, to create brands. And uh, so for some 20 some odd years, I've been doing that. And for the past couple of years, doing it alongside a, a consumer investment fund. So that's what I do. And that's not all. Just before Mike joined the company he talks about on today's show, so I was the founder of uh, Consigliere Brand Capital, which was a, a mutant version of what Bullish is today. So I was the acting chief marketing officer of Under Armour. We did crisis work for Chobani. We did some work for Sam Adams Beer, and all of which were dealing with the founders of that. So it was a lot of fun, um, but wasn't enough fun. We didn't actually make ads. We did strategy. We told other people to do, but we weren't really as accountable as we wanted to be for the things that we were saying. So um, I had two choices. One can kind of recapitalize and, and do more services uh, or two, use our investment arm and partner with a, a, another marketing agency and maybe accelerate the proposition even further. And I chose that door. That brings us back to this ad agency he took over in 2013. Just to be clear, we're not naming this agency on the show, but it still exists and is doing just fine. So back in 2013, Mike was surveying his job options and was approached by this company. This one company in particular was interesting in that they had clear-cut creative talent. In the marketing world, you need strategic thinking in terms of who to target and, and, and understand the business dynamics and then creatives to come up with the ideas that we all share when our offices are like, did you see that ad or whatnot? So the, the creative potential was, was unmistakable. And it was a place that wasn't really that famous. And as someone that was kind of always the guy behind the guy at Deutsch, I mean, Donnie Deutsch is a larger-than-life figure, which in polarizing at that, um, but it was an opportunity to kind of make a mark and, and, and help people that had huge upside, that had done some good things in their careers, achieve more than we'd ever done before. Before joining the company, Mike took time to make sure that it was a solid opportunity. Spent uh, a year in discussions, had a forensic accountant look at things three years back, um, made the choice to maybe even take less in salary than I've been making before working for myself and a little bit of equity to, um, uh, to, to grow this thing for what it could be. And so what sort of due diligence opportunities did you have to look at the company before you decided to take it over? Sure. It would, basically, it means hiring smarter, smart, you know, people smarter than me, signing an NDA, getting access to their financials over the past three years, um, looking at the just the setup of the company, cap table, um, voting rights and that. And so I felt pretty comfortable, had a bunch of questions. Over the course of four or five months, um, did that, so pretty good. And, and what it, looked pretty good about it? Um, some growth, it was stable, it was profitable. There were some areas that uh, it clearly needed to be addressed, but when you look at the output of the work they were doing, the 36 month history of what they had from a financials basis, a significant minority owner that's well revered in globally um, in, in marketing. Um, there was a lot to like. And what sorts of contracts were they getting at this point? 
That's the funny thing. At that point, they were working with some of the biggest blue chip brands in the world and, and that. But what was quickly understood some 30, 40 days afterwards is none of those contracts, they were all basically expired and nothing new was signed up. And they basically had from the time I was accepting the job to January 1st, over the course of about four months, they had three different financial directors. And uh, that was a little bit unexpected. And that had nothing to do with any decisions I made, but uh, maybe that was a sign of things to come. What was the time period when you officially took over the company as CEO? So my first day was the week of Thanksgiving in 2013, uh, November 25th. Nice New York Times article, great stuff going on. It was getting, you know, it's hard to screw up your first couple of days. I can screw up anything, but I didn't screw up those first couple of days. Actually had a, a piece of business that we won our third day because it was someone who I'd met at my previous firm that I kind of borrowed time on and, and brought over here, which was exciting. And then started to go through the financials of going forward and just ran into some hijinks, if you will, like the financial director got sick and ill and on a trip to uh, Nevada and never came back. And due to federal laws, I can't ask if it's a medical emergency and that. So to try and get different documents like contracts and some of the basic things took a little bit longer. Um, but long story short, in about 30 days from what was supposed to be a, a 45, 50% growth opportunity wound up being, we may not have a lot of cash and we may not have enough cash to actually last through the first quarter of the year. Wait, what sort of growth opportunity did you think this was going to be? Well, what I saw, I, I, they, they were projecting 45 or 50% in, in the second week in our first board meeting, I cut that to 20% sight unseen just because if my name's gonna be on it, I wanna be a bit more conservative. So while I took a little bit of heat from my minority investor, it's just, I think anyone would take 20% growth from pretty much anything right now. Um, so, and then you look deeper in the books, it's like the, everything that date had been paid, there was, no, there was no, nothing scandalous, nothing, with the word Ponzi anywhere associated with it, but there was nothing going for it. And, and even though I had revised things down sight unseen, not in just meeting clients, our January numbers were off 81%. I can do a lot of things. It's actually hard to do that, to put numbers in there and just that. But the, for whatever reason, numbers were put in, and this was right before I had gotten there that it indicated we'd make a certain number and the money didn't come in. And it's not like, the money came in on February 2nd, and we did accrual base. The money wasn't there. And so uh, it's one of the many times where I, I think I saw a, a company with high potential and, and, and strong talent over, overly think that hope can be a strategy. And just to clarify, before you took over the company, were you aware of what future contracts they might have? No, and that's not the stuff you usually get in this business at all. It's just in uh, a lot of the contracts over those three years were the same with with a pillar of three or four of the same clients and then some growth here and there. There's also project work goes on. So uh, the stability of revenue is, was pretty decent from some of the similar players. There was just nothing in place. So part of it was a timing issue, whether people just weren't aggressive enough to get those contracts signed or didn't push for them. Or in one case, like, oh, I thought you were doing that. So nothing had been done. And that's just not the way you run a strong, profitable business. Was there a moment or a specific time when you figured out that the company might ha not have enough cash for the next quarter? It was uh, early January. And actually, at that point, I realized we may not have enough cash to actually reach into March um, without certain 
things done that were hard to do. So very quickly fired 38% of the staff, um, which was difficult to do. Some people had just moved to the U.S. in, in cases on that to, um, to take the job there. And How do you remember that percentage, that 38 percentage so clearly? Because those are real people. Those aren't headlines in a Times article or anything like that. They were like individual names on that side of it. And uh, those are tough decisions to make. The people that were good at what they did, and this isn't the first time it's happened. It's not the last time. It happens a lot, as, as we all know. But to me, business is personal. And for, for a company that was around you know, 50 people or so, that's a material amount uh, And that. And not only that, the amount of people that weren't going to be there, the ones that you want to stay with, if they're really good, they're probably going to have multiple offers. So how do you rally a group of people around to get to stay and fight for something? And um, there was a lot of heart, but that was, uh, that was something that hadn't been done there before. What were you feeling internally at this point? You realized that the company isn't necessarily the opportunity you thought it was going to be. Coupled with that, you're going to have to make some hard decisions that impact others moving forward. And are you, were you prepared for this? Did you feel cut out for it? What's going on? Wasn't prepared for it. Uh, now I can say I think I was uh, cut out to do it, but it's nothing I could read in a book. Um, before we made the decision to, is one of the many measures we had to take to, to release the, the, those people that we did, I kind of had this two-day span of like, okay, this is not what I signed up for. Um, shame on me. I don't know what I missed or whatever at that point in time, but just this, this is a big surprise. Um, I could run right now and leave, and no one would really blame me because things must be on that, but emotionally to, to do everything to take the helm of this company, to, to essentially leave behind a good part of what I was doing before other than the investment side, that's just a lot. And to go through it again is something I didn't want to go through. And, you know, being some kid growing up in an Irish Catholic household in Syracuse, New York, it's just like you can get stubborn. So I decided to get stubborn and say, like, we can spend the year, figure this thing out, and see what goes. What else, what else could I do? I could leave, but then it's just I'd be a little bit too gun shy. Was there anything specific that made you think, I don't want to turn, I don't want to run away at this point? Pride. You know, I'm the leader. It's uh, technically I was a rookie CEO when you have your own company. I guess they don't count that as founding a company, but um, I'd always been associated with being a growth person and, and and corporate strategy person. So this was clearly a turnaround. I mean, I even looked at bankruptcy as as a game of chicken with one of our investors, just because that could be a way of doing it, knowing they didn't want to do that. So it's kind of those things that I haven't been through something like that. So it's either I'll I'll, I'll be better for it. I can say that now, harder to do at that time. When you say you had to threaten bankruptcy, can you go into a little bit more of what actions you took to potentially do that? Um, well, to threaten bankruptcy, you don't need that much. It's, you know, you could do that pretty quickly, but it's like not knowing what the options are when you don't have enough money to pay people or pay your debts on that side of it. There's only so many things you could do. And one of the things is we're exploring a lifeline from one of our investors is, and the terms weren't going that great, quite frankly. The, one of the strategies I employed is like, well, if they get a black eye for this too, no one's going to win on that one. So maybe that gets alignment. And um, they certainly didn't want to do that. So I think they, they realized, okay, okay we got to make this work or people could just walk away. Um, 
think there's an adage that if you go to prison, which thankfully I've, I don't have never gone and don't plan on going to prison, you go find the bully in the playground and punch him in the face. And that might get your ass kicked, but that's something where you set a tone for respect. And I think even just floating up the potential of bankruptcy did a little bit of that. But from there, there was a, as austerity as we could. We, we did manage a lifeline. Um, we took care and trimmed the headcount. Um, there was no excessiveness in terms of travel or anything. I, I can't even think that we did have toilet paper. Um, and, and this is a human-based business, so you have to make it a good environment for people to be in or else they can leave. So luckily that call from March came in, and so there was you know, a 60-day window of instability, to say the very least, that that was like a building block of from others to come. But um, those weren't fun. And when you have, God, I remember a kid four years out of school, she was tasked with just like getting burdened with calls, like, where's my money, where's my money? The company was also moving into new space that was well over budget, like well over budget. And so it was just like a perfect storm, but somewhat self-created. But again, I don't think there was massive amount of maliciousness behind it. It's just like negligence naivete. Stepping back into that night around 840 when you got a really exciting phone call, was that the turning point of starting to sign new contracts or get new clients? What did that signal for the company? That was a big, it was relief more than celebration. Um, it was big relief and proof of concept. And even if you know you're good at something and as a company we knew we were good, it's just like you need third-party validation. And that was it. And so that was a, Um, where losing would not have been a good option whatsoever at that point in time. So, um, but then things happen in threes. We wound up getting in other pitches and through different means and, and we were winning and building and, um, paying things off and, and dare I say later in the year, um, even hiring again. I mean, we, for, for a company that misses January numbers, like as poorly as it did, which is just incredible, we were actually up just under 5% for the year, which is amazing. For a year that start off, you're down 81 in the hole, and then you wind up being up uh, a couple points at the end of the year. And uh, it was a tale of, it wasn't a tale of two years, it was just a, a roller coaster meets snowstorm meets uh, everything, And but that's business. Do you feel, looking back, that you left a mark on that company? Yes. And I don't, I don't know if it's appreciated. I don't need it to be appreciated. But the experience left a mark on me. Uh, it made me a lot better. Um, it, and it was not an easy year just going through that. But uh, I, you, you find out what you're capable of doing. And then when you're the CEO, it's, it seems like it's a glamorous position. It's the janitor. You've got to be accountable for everything. And, and in my opinion, your job is to celebrate other people and build teams and take the accountability and say, my fault. It's hard to do. People don't like taking accountability. I have no problem doing it um, on that side because um, you know, I think I believe in my talents, but I also know like what it takes to, you know, to win championships, you have to know your role. And um, I think people there did know their role. And I played the, the kind of like straight-laced yet kind of like affable chief executive officer that would let other people flourish but be the backstop of something. So how did Mike decide what to do next? The thing about going through a financial crisis in our own little world that we were going through is like, there was a distraction. So I didn't have to think about it. But all roads kept going back to, 
get the band back together, do what you're doing before, just do it with different people. And, and that's what we decided. And so my partner, Brent, um, on that, if I mentioned the, the day that we won in March 13th, had, had his son the next day. And then a week later, he called. He's like, we got to go all in again. Like, what are you talking about? He's like, we got to do it. And just like him, he realized, like, if something's going to take you away from your kid, it's got to be worth it, which I completely subscribe to. So we started plotting and on weekends and what if, what if, and, and more and more like the burden knowing that my, my current firm was we were back on track doing it. It just like, I wasn't as, I was kind of detaching. And we start detaching and especially with, especially when you're, we have more of an EQ based and IQ approach towards leadership, you're not that good at it. And so I started half-assing some, some of the stuff I thought um, on a day-to-day basis because I was emotionally divesting and I was literally plotting my death from that place. So there were certain meetings like, you know what, you go to that meeting. But what if, what if, no, no, you got this, I believe in you. So you start empowering people for mostly the right reasons, but I can't say to all of them that um, there's probably meetings I should have been in, but knowing that I was going to be resigning, which I finally did in December 14th, uh, 2014, which was a again, a huge burden off my back there, um, that it just, I wasn't as good. And it just, one of those things I've learned, it's just like, when you know you have to rip the bandaid off, don't count three, two, one, just do it. Just do it. Almost as soon as Mike left the ad agency in the spring of 2015, he and Brent began bullish. And based on quite a few conversations I've had with Mike over the last two years, I can tell you that he's pretty emotionally invested in what he's doing these days. So looking at what Bullish has accomplished at this point, what do you view as some of the biggest marks of success? This will come too self-important, but, but what I'm proudest of Bullish for is the very fact that we exist. There is literally nothing else like it in North America. One part marketing ad agency that did Super Bowl spots, and then one part consumer investment firm that has three or four companies worth over a billion dollars that we funded from scratch. No one else is doing it. And there's been some public validations. Um, we just ranked one of the most cutting edge advertising things on earth, right ahead of IBM, which is just hilarious. You know, it's like bullish, 18 people, IBM, 115,000. And, um, and so we're in the act of doing it. We're putting money and marketing on the same page to produce superior returns. And I'm so proud of the people of the agency that had the guts to come join this thing that sounded like a crazy idea, but proof of concept. And now every day we're getting more signs of validation that maybe Mike wasn't as dumb as we thought he was. If you liked what you heard on today's episode, make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, tell us what you think by leaving a review. You can also find photos showing the making of Rally on social media by following Rally underscore podcast on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And next week is going to be our last episode of the first season of Rally. So stay tuned because I'm pretty excited to share the story. I'm Michaela Bennett. Thanks for listening.